Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal too? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Farah, you and I pay taxes on personal property, things like our homes and our cars and our mules even, I guess. But there's one kind of very personal property on which we do not pay taxes, but it's highly important that we be aware of. That's right. It's intellectual property, something that can be every bit as tangible as a car or a house, but it is a product of our minds. Things such as manuscripts, designs, art and music. It's, it's the kind of thing protected by patents and trademarks and copyrights. We're going to talk about it today because it might be more personally meaningful than we might think. You might have heard about copyright infringement lawsuits in recent years, most recent cases involving Childish Gambino and Nirvana, who were sued by people who thought they had used their songs without permission. And Khloe Kardashian, who sued to remove a private photograph that was posted on social media without her permission. We're going to talk about intellectual property with Michael Kahn, a senior counsel with the St. Louis firm of Cape Sokol, who recently won a copyright infringement case against pop star Katy Perry. Copyright, trademark, First Amendment, and media law are his specialties. Welcome to our podcast, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you explain to us the Katy Perry case so that we have a little bit of background for reference as we go along? The Katy Perry case involved a copyright. The copyrights protect original works of creation, and it includes television shows, paintings. I had a case involving a tattoo with Hangover 2, Mike Tyson's face tattoo. It involves characters such as Superman, Sherlock Holmes. But one of the areas there's a great deal of copyright interest is in music. This case that I got involved with, which I will tell you right now is up in the Court of Appeals, and the Federal Circuit, which is the Ninth Circuit out in California, I was approached by three musicians in a genre that I confess I didn't know even existed, which is Christian gospel hip-hop. And they were upset because in recent times, they had been performing their song, which is called Joyful Noise, and they were being approached by fans and even by concert bookers asking them, whether they had licensed that song to Katy Perry for her best-selling song, Dark Horse. They didn't even know what it was, and they listened to it, and they were upset, and they came to me. And we listened to it, and we agreed with them. We got an expert, a musicologist, actually the head of the music department at Washington University, Professor Todd Decker. He listened to it, and he was convinced that this recurring theme, which in music terminology is called an ostinato, we would know it more familiarly as a beat. And it plays throughout Joyful Noise, and it plays through about half of Dark Horse. The question was, was the Dark Horse ostinato, this beat, substantially similar to the one in Joyful Noise? And we took the case. It was not simply Katy Perry. It was Capitol Records. It was a classic David versus Goliath case in which the jury concluded that the Dark Horse song did indeed infringe Joyful Noise, and they found copyright infringement. It's now up in the Court of Appeals because the district judge disagreed. She threw out part of the verdict, and it's a fight that goes on and on. We're hoping it'll get resolved before the end of the year. But that's an area of copyright. The case I mentioned, which was the tattoo case, I got approached by the tattoo artist who did Mike Tyson's face tattoo, the one around his eye. 
he learned in Hangover 2, that movie, which if you've ever seen Hangover 1, Hangover 2, or Hangover 3, they all have the same premise, which is it's a bachelor party, and all the guys go out, and they wake up the next morning with all kind of strange things that they don't remember, including a tiger in the hotel bathroom. And in this case, the dentist wakes up, and he's got a version of Mike Tyson's tattoo on his face. And that was a copyright claim. It turns out our tattoo artists own the copyright. He loved Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was not involved in the lawsuit, but we ended up suing Warner Brothers because they failed to get a license from our client for use of that tattoo on someone else's face. And, and that case actually settled after the preliminary injunction hearing. But it's really two examples of how this creation, which gets is one of the many types of intellectual property out there, how it can convey rights on whoever the creator is. And we can talk about it later. It traces these rights back actually to the founding fathers. It's in the Constitution where they gave Congress the power for the purpose of basically improving culture and science. They gave Congress the authority to grant artists and inventors a limited right an exclusive monopoly in their creations for a limited period of time to give them an incentive, whether it was an invention or a creation work of art. And that's what Congress did when they passed the Patent Act and the original Copyright Act way back in the late 1700s and early 1800s. That's the short summary of how we ended up here today. It, it seems to me that the phrase substantially similar is subjective. Is there a way to actually measure substantially similar? Or is it just one of these cases of I know it if I hear it? You know, that's, that's a terrific question. And each of the federal circuit courts have come up with their own way of grappling with that. Federal courts in California said, in order to prove substantial similarity in a copyright case, you need to prove that's substantially similar under an extrinsic test and an intrinsic test. And the extrinsic test requires expert testimony from experts, these in this case musicologists, who need to identify objective elements of the song at issue and compare it to the objective elements of the allegedly infringing song. And they need to explain to a jury how this is substantially similar. So it becomes a battle of the experts. And then they say, then there's the intrinsic test in which it's a reasonable person listens to the two songs or looks at the two movies, looks at the two works of art and decides whether to a reasonable person these are substantially similar. So it's a great question. It's a two-part test. Hollywood's got their favorite experts and the music industry has their favorites. So you mentioned that the tattoo artist had a copyright or had copyrighted that piece of art, body art, if you will. Did the musicians have a copyright for joyful noise? Or is a copyright something you have to go out and proactively seek for your intellectual property? Or is it is it just a given that you have a copyright? The answer is both, Farah. So under the Copyright Act, it got passed in 1976, which eliminated a lot of the formalities from before. The creator gets a copyright at the moment of creation. And when I teach this in the law school, in that class, I said, you know, some of you are, as I'm talking, taking notes. I said, when we end this class, look down at your notes. You own a copyright in your notes. To which I said, you'll probably roll in your eyes like, what value is that? Well, when I was in law school, there was a fellow named Stephen Emanuel whose notes had become legendary. And, and the goal was to try to get photocopies of his notes for your contracts class, 
our feeder civil procedure class, which would help you study. And he was very clever, Stephen Emanuel, and he eventually copyrighted those notes, registered them. And if you talk to law students today, they can tell you, you can get Emanuel on copyright or Emanuel on contracts or Emanuel on torts, which are expanded, more, much more elegant versions of his notes. So the copyright, at the moment of creation, you get a copyright. But if you want to bring a lawsuit, you have to register the copyright, which is like the one threshold that the federal courts say. You just can't come running in the court and say, I have a copyright in this. You need to attach as Exhibit A to your complaint the actual copyright registration. So, Farah, it's a two-part answer. And, in fact, in the example of both the tattoo artists and the musicians in the Katy Perry case, they registered the copyright long after they created their work in order to be able to go into court and bring a lawsuit. If somebody takes notes of a lecture you give and then copyrights the notes, doesn't that cut you out of some legal entity that you have in terms of the creator of the material? Under the copyright statute, it says that it has to be a creation that is fixed in a tangible medium of expression. When I'm up at the lecture, giving a lecture, what I'm saying is not fixed in a tangible medium of expression. It's just me jabbering away. Now, if somebody is videotaping it, that would be fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Those of us in the copyright world roll our eyes when we listen to a radio broadcast or even a TV broadcast of a baseball game or a football game, and we hear that thing is always recited, that the broadcast is owned, you know, is a copyright owned by the St. Louis Cardinals or the Kansas City Royals, and any republication broadcast or whatever is, you know, without our permission is a violation of the copyright law. Technically, that's true, because that radio broadcast or the TV broadcast is being fixed in a tangible medium of expression. It's being recorded, but there's been a lot of controversy over, for example, dance presentations, a ballet. The ballet itself is not covered by copyright. The actual dancer is moving around. So what ends up happening is that the artist who creates it will then create some sort of description of that ballet and images, because that's what you would copyright, because the actual performance up there, just like the performance of a song on stage, is not itself copyrighted, because it's just being performed up there. And that's why there will be a recording of that song. That then is the part that's covered by the copyright. This is a bit of a random question, but Bob, you actually invited me to volunteer years ago on the Jefferson City Concert Association. And I know that our symphony here in mid-Missouri oftentimes would pick music that was originally created prior to certain dates because they wouldn't have to necessarily pay to perform that music. Is that part of that copyright law that you mentioned was revised in the 1970s? That's when we get into public domain, isn't it, Michael? Originally, as envisioned by Congress back in like the late 18th century, the term of a copyright was 20 years. And that kept getting expanded. And in the 1990s, Congress expanded it one more time under what is derisively known as the Mickey Mouse Amendment, because Mickey Mouse was about to fall into the public domain. And they extended the length of a copyright to 95 years. So Mickey Mouse will remain in copyright until I think it's 2024. But as of today, everything created at or before 1925 is now in the public domain. So, for example, The Great Gatsby is now in the public domain. What does that mean? 
It means Bob and Farah, you and I can create our own publishing house and we can publish an edition of The Great Gatsby because it's now free for anyone to use. And that's why when you go into a bookstore, if you want to buy the latest John Grisham novel, you're going to have one version and it's going to be quite expensive compared to if you want to get Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, there are probably 10 different paperback versions at like one-tenth the price of a paperback version of a John Grisham novel because all the Jane Austen novels are in the public domain. You can do whatever you want with them, including there's a clever one that was actually made the bestseller list a few years ago called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, in which somebody new took the Pride and Prejudice novel and added zombies to it. You can do that, even though Jane Austen might be rolling over in her grave at the thought of zombies being added along with Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet. But that's what you can do once it's in the public domain. You can't take it out of the public domain by publishing your own edition of the same words and copyright that, can you? That's correct, Bob, but you can create what's known as a derivative work, which would be Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and that one you could get a copyright registration for. But that copyright registration wouldn't protect anything that was in the original. So, you know, we could do Pride and Prejudice and Vampires. You guys are interested in our, when we do our publishing house, <laughs> we do the... F. Scott Fitzgerald, we can do Pride and Prejudice and Vampires, which I think would be very interesting, particularly if we have Mr. Darcy gets bitten by a vampire. Yeah. It has a whole new element to that love story. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. The first time I heard the phrase intellectual property, I was confused. But I read more and came up with a definition. To me, intellectual property means stuff I made up. Stuff that I wrote, designed, created, painted, sculpted, and that I could put out to the public for display or sale. It would be mine. I would get credit for it. If someone thought my creation was worth something, I could sell it or rent it or license it for money. No wonder our founding fathers put in the United States Constitution a recognition that such property should be protected. It is the backbone of our capitalist society. Today's podcast has a great discussion about this topic, especially its emphasis on copyright. Copyright is so much a part of our economic system, we often take it for granted. If I make stuff up and someone else steals it, I can sue. What a concept. I first encountered the notion of copyright more than 50 years ago when I was a reporter for the Minneapolis Star, a job I held during law school. Like a lot of major newspapers, the Star misused the legal concept of copyright to protect news coverage the editors considered exclusive. The newspaper was not seeking to get money from its competitors who borrowed our stuff, but simply to get credit for the information when it was reported in other newspapers and media, which in the pre-internet days consisted mainly of other newspapers, television and radio stations and magazines. As a young and not entirely respectful reporter, and an ink-stained wretch at that, we sometimes referred to copyright story as copy wrong. Here's how our copyrights worked, and here's why they were incorrect as a legal matter. If the newspaper had a story no one else had, such as an investigative piece, the paper would publish it with the label, Copyright 1968, the Minneapolis Star. That was a signal to other news outlets that the Star should get credit for the scoop, with the implied threat that the newspaper might sue for infringement. The other media would report it like this. 
In a copyrighted story, the Minneapolis Star reported today that, da the wrong in copy wrong referred correctly to the law that facts and information cannot be copyrighted. Only the words and images that were used to convey the information, as long as the competing writer did not copy the material essentially word for word, there was no copyright violation. And there has always been the notion that a copier could use some of the words, fair use, without violating the copyright of the owner. What the law does not protect, presumably because information and ideas should be readily shared among the public, are ideas, procedures, methods, systems, processes, concepts, principles, and discoveries. In my reporting days, I longed for a time when I would have the opportunity and the gumption to report on another paper's copyrighted story by writing, in a copyrighted rumor, the St. Paul Pioneer Pest reported today, but alas, I lacked that kind of gumption, so I became a lawyer. Congress, in its role as copyright protector, has provided for generous time periods during which a creator's creations are protected. The property that is the copyrighted work can be inherited for a period of time after its creator leaves the earth. The heirs of Jane Austen, long since dead, have no copyright in her works. Hence, you will find a book entitled Pride and Prejudice and Vampires, a parody of sorts of her great novel Pride and Prejudice. At a certain point, we leave it to discerning readers to read the great novel and not be troubled by a strange or offensive knockoff. No copyright, no foul, and no money for Jane Austen's heirs. Similarly, titles are not copyrighted. John F. Kennedy was the author of a book entitled Why England Slept. So was Winston Churchill decades earlier. If Sir Winston, who was still alive when Kennedy's book was published, was not amused, he had no recourse to the courts. Protecting copyrights is important for our place in the world. We want innovation to be rewarded, not stolen. I was a visiting lecturer in China in 1989, a fascinating time characterized by, among other things, an uprising by entrepreneurs who wanted to make money on the stuff they made up. They needed the government's permission to use and market it, but such cooperation was hard to get. And a few favored in China and other countries were getting ahead by copying our American stuff and selling it without paying us for it. Our nation has spent a lot of time and money and treaties to protect the stuff we make up. It is an ongoing struggle, both in our own country, as my friend Michael Kahn, noted writer and exceedingly able lawyer, points out in this podcast, as well as internationally. What about the internet, where everyone steals everyone else's work? The owners of copyrighted works are still figuring that out and asking the courts for answers. The answers can occupy an an entire course of study in law school, a bit much for a couple of minutes of commentary. Because I wrote this commentary, I own the copyright, unless, of course, it is owned by the Missouri Bar as what is called a work for hire. But because the bar is not paying me, I believe it is mine. I could protect it by filing a registration with the U.S. Copyright Office. I could sue those who use it without my permission. But I'm not going to do that. In fact, I grant permission to anyone, especially our host Bob Pretty and Farrah Fight, to use it as much as they want without crediting me or paying me a cent. I hope that they and you, the listener, will find that is it worth at least what they have paid for it. This is Mike Wolf, commentary creator. Legalese. So if I have a camera, I like to take photos as a hobby. So I have an inherent copyright in the photography that I create. Is there any teeth in it? If someone 
sees something that I post to a social media platform or sees one of my prints and then goes out to reprint it for their own home. Do I have any teeth in prohibiting someone from violating my copyright if I haven't taken that extra step of registering it? Is there any step before you would take someone to court over a copyright? Because you own the copyrights in your photographs, you can't take them to court until you register it, but you can certainly send them a demand letter or a takedown notice. Places like Instagram and Facebook and others have their own rules and takedown notices, and they may require you to give them a, you know, a copy of, or proof that you've registered the copyright, but you unquestionably have a copyright in your photographs. Copyright is actually a group of exclusive rights. One of them is a right to make reproductions of that or copies. Another is the right to publicly display it. There is a bizarre copyright case right now um, working its way through the courts. A woman who was an artist and had her paintings hung on her walls rented out her home like an Airbnb to what turned out to be a an adult film company that filmed some scenes in her bedroom and visible on the wall behind the bed and whatever was going on on the bed were two of her paintings. And that would violate the right of public display of her paintings. They didn't make a reproduction, but they did a public display, which is your point on Instagram. That would, that would violate your rights. And she's now suing them for copyright infringement. And what is, you know, my legal assistant says, you know, no wonder you like copyright law. There are some bizarre cases. Well, with the proliferation of social media and the stuff that gets circulated around on social media all the time in terms of pictures or posters or things like that. Are there common ordinary folks like my neighbors who put things on social media who could get into pretty serious trouble if they don't watch out? We have a copyright statute passed in 1976, became law in 1978, and as many commentators have pointed out, was already obsolete. And social media is this entire new area. There have been several lawsuits over Instagram posts brought by photographers. You know, the question is, if I'm a photographer and I post something on Instagram and then someone else posts it, it says my copyright been violated. I mean, the Internet, just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's in the public domain, but it's very confusing for people because it appears to be in the public domain. You know, people are posting things on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and they're making reproductions of works that are protected by copyright. There's a lot of confusion out there. And there have been some, some big lawsuits that have been filed over stuff that has been posted out there. In fact, I've been involved in several representing companies that had no idea that what they were putting up there as part of their news or part of their social media presence was actually a copyright that was registered. That it was a photograph or an image. It was protected by copyright. Where do we get into, what's the phrase, proper use that basically says you can use things maybe without attributing them to someone as long as there's a use? Yeah, there's a, an entire area of copyright law called fair use. Fair use, yeah. Which is when are you allowed to use something without having to get permission? And I like to joke it's a Copyright Lawyers Full Employment Act because it's kind of hard to pin down. One type of fair use is using for educational purposes. There's more leeway given to teachers who make photocopies of sections of, of books, although not the entire book. 
One area which is supposed to be clear, but it's not clear, is when you're making a commentary in the original. So there was one famous case where someone had written a book called The Wind Ungone, which was a rewriting of Gone with the Wind, but was told from the point of view of the slaves. And the owners of the copyright in Gone with the Wind sued, saying this was a copyright infringement. You used our characters, you used the setting. But the court said, no, this was a commentary. This was a fair use. Whereas there was a case in which there was a parody version of the Dr. Seuss book, The Cat in the Hat, in which it was a parody of that book, or so the publisher claimed, and the theme was the O.J. Simpson trial. And the title was The Cat Not in the Hat, and, but it had all the images. They claimed this was just a parody of the original, and the court said, no, it's not. You just borrowed all the artwork and all the concepts. This is not a fair use. There's been a lot of litigation over what is and is not a fair use, but you're right. That's an entire area where the courts have said you're allowed to take without permission a significant part of the original if you're making a commentary on it, if you're making a parody of it, or if you're making some other use that's not going to impact on the economic value of the original. Do you have any suggestions or tips of how the average person can, you know, do their due diligence or do their best in making sure that they respect other people's work and not share it inappropriately? Are there, are there things that we should think of before we share something on social media or even before we all carry around a camera in our hands now today, before we take a, a picture of art that we see somewhere or share, like you said, the beat, the foundation of a song and decide to remix that into something that we're working on ourselves? It's often in this kind of a blurry area. In the origins of hip hop, there was a lot of sampling that went on where they were taking, you know, the artists were taking 10 or 15 second clips from existing songs and then they were rapping over them. And the courts eventually decided, no, that's not a fair use. You're going to have to get a license for that, even though it was a short clip. In photographing things that you see outside generally, if it's outside, it's okay to take a photograph of it and use it. There's some sort of implied license if they put it outside. If it's if you find it on some website, it's usually worth it looking down at the bottom. They have terms of use. Click on that and see what whoever this you know website is claiming, whether it's the New York Times and you see this great photograph or it's some artist site. Some places all they want you to do is give them attribution. In other places you've got to go out and get a license. It's kind of a tricky area. What's the difference between copyright and trademark? Great question. It's a answer that many lawyers who don't practice the area have no idea. Because they'll ask me if they can copyright something and it's actually a trademark. So copyrights, like I mentioned, those are original creations. Things that we think of as books, movies, photographs, works of art, music, even advertisements are covered by copyright. Trademarks, think of in terms of brands. A trademark is a brand. It's something that is used by someone to associate with their product. It can be a word, Nike. It can be an image, which is the Nike swoosh. It can be a slogan. Nike is registered, just do it. Taco Bell has registered, think outside the bun. Oddly enough, it can even be a color. UPS has registered brown for its delivery truck. So if you and I want to go into the business of doing deliveries, we better not have brown trucks. This case got to the Supreme Court. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the name of the insulation company, 
but they had pink insulation. In fact, they had the Pink Panther. They did a license agreement with that. They had the Pink Panther ads. Another company put out insulation of their own for homes that was pink. And the original company sued the other company over the color pink. And it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, if this color becomes associated with your product, it works like a brand. One of the big issues in the area of trademarks is trying to protect it. Because the key in trademarks is, is this likely to cause confusion? I mean, trademarks, unlike copyrights and patents, which we'll talk about, trademarks are directed towards the public. So they give a company, Coca-Cola has a trademark in Coke and Coca-Cola, but it's up to them. They have to protect it. So there are some famous trademarks that were once valuable trademarks that the companies that own them failed to protect them and they became generic. Aspirin is one example. That was originally a trademark registered to the Bayer Pharmaceutical Company. They didn't do a good job of protecting it and eventually was declared to be generic. So anyone can now use aspirin for a painkiller. Escalator, believe it or not, was once a trademark, which that company failed to protect. And it's now generic as is Thermos, a company that has spent untold amount of money trying to protect its trademark is Xerox. Xerox is a trademark for the machine that makes photocopies. But if a word starts being used as either a noun or a verb, it can become generic. And if you think back 10 years ago, including me, you might ask your assistant, can you make me a Xerox? Or can you Xerox this? Both are examples of using it as a noun or a verb instead of as a brand, as opposed to, can you make me a Xerox copy of this? Xerox takes out ads, Kleenex people take out ads, trying to remind people it's Kleenex paper tissue. It's not a Kleenex. I can remember in the early days of instant decaffeinated coffee, all the Sanka ads, they always referred to a Sanka brand decaffeinated coffee because they were afraid that Sanka was going to become the generic term for all decaffeinated coffees. I was going to say that double-edged sword is fascinating to me because typically you would think a brand would want to be, would want their trademark as the associated term for that product, you know, generically that everyone only thinks of your brand or your trademark when using that type of product. But it sounds like it puts a whole new burden on the company to protect, as you said, that trademark to ensure that it doesn't become the everyday slang or verb or noun that we as society use for that type of product. No, it's, it's true. And I'll tell you, I had a rude awakening to this issue. I was on a case down in, I think it was Alabama. And I was at a restaurant with the lawyer down there. And she said, you know, what would you like to drink with lunch? He said, you know, I'll, I'll have a Coke. And she said, what type? And he said, uh, a 7-Up. And I was like, what? And I asked him. And he said, oh, yeah, down in the South, a Coke is the generic term for any carbonated soda. And I remember, which then clicked with me. I remember when I was interviewing this Wall Street firm, I had this, this young associate who was, who got very honest, was warning me not to come to the firm. It was a sweatshop. But he said he was on the Coca-Cola trademark team. I said, what is that? He said, we go around the country for places that we know don't have Coke, but they serve Pepsi. And we ask for a Coke. And if they don't say we don't have Coke, but we have Pepsi, but they just bring us the drink, we will then send them a demand letter. If you're with someone or you are the person in a restaurant and you say, uh, I'll have a Coke, they will sometimes say, well, we don't have Coke. We do have Pepsi. Is that okay? And that's because Coke was threatening everybody with lawsuits. 
over trying to keep that term from becoming generic, not just for cola, but in the South for any sort of soda. I have heard that, and now I know where it comes from. So Tony the Tiger is trademarked, but it's great, can be copyrighted. Tony the Tiger, it's great would be probably a trademark. Yeah, because copyright won't cover short phrases. So like Taco Bell, think outside the bun. They had to trademark that slogan, just like Nike had to. The whole issue is is likelihood of confusion, which in trying to explain that is my favorite case. There's a novelty condom company down in Texas, which came out with a novelty condom that they, it was black, and they named it the Stealth Condom with the slogan, they'll never see you coming. And they got brought into court by, I believe it was Northrop, which owns a trademark registration in Stealth for bombers. And Northrop basically got, got lectured by the court. They said, okay, you have to prove likelihood of confusion among your consumers. As near as we can tell, your consumer is somebody in the purchasing office at the Pentagon. He is purchasing something that costs over a billion dollars each, has a wing spread of something like the size of a football field. And you've got to prove us he's going to be confused to thinking he can get the most incredible deal on those stealth bombers, three for ten dollars. There's no possibility of confusion. Get out of here. That's what trademarks are about. They're protecting the public from confusion. But we give those rights to the owner of the trademark and tell them, fine, you got it. It's all yours. You better protect it. So many of our businesses that make up the economy here, both in Missouri and the United States, are small businesses. And, you know, they're probably spending their days and nights worrying about keeping the doors open and making sure that they have the product available. At what point should a small business be considering copyright and or trademark? At some level, they should all be considering this, these issues. But to do them in a financially prudent way, not spending a ton of money. If they got an idea for a clever name for their business, it's probably worth meeting with or talking with a trademark lawyer and say, is there anybody out there who has registered the trademark in this business name? Because the last thing you want to do is six months or a year later, when you start to actually have success, to suddenly get a demand letter from some multi-million dollar company saying, you better stop using that name. It's like trying to rename one of your children a year or two down the road. You, you know, your mind's going to go blank. And what am I going to do? It's the same, you know, with small companies that have come up with a clever invention. You know, I always urge them, seek out a patent lawyer that deals with small companies and see whether this is something you can protect. Because if you can get a patent in this, then other bigger companies that really like this idea are going to have to come to you to get a license to use that patent. So. You know, small companies, you don't need to spend a lot of money, but in some basic things, whatever your creations are, you don't even think about this. For example, fabric patterns. Clothing can't be copyrighted, but fabric patterns can. And you would be surprised at how many lawsuits, copyright lawsuits, have been filed claiming that somebody is infringing their fabric pattern. It's worth talking to a lawyer to make sure, number one, that this is not infringing someone else's copyright, but number two, then maybe it's worth registering the copyright in that because if it becomes popular, there will be somebody else coming along who's going to try to knock it off. 
along the lines of fabric patterns, can recipe be copyrighted? I, you know, talking earlier about Coca-Cola, they have their recipe that they've kept secret, <laughs> you know, for more than a century. Are recipes something that restaurant owners should consider copyrighting? Well, we, that's a great question, and it gets us into the world of trade secrets. Recipes cannot be protected under copyright, which is why a lot of the cookbooks that have recipes in them, they've got all kind of other text around them because all that other text can be protected. Describing here's how I came up with this idea. I was in the south of France and I met this farmer who took me into his thing, blah, 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 blah. That, all, all that is creative and can be protected, but the recipes cannot. The only way and the recipe can't be protected by trademark, it can't be protected by patent. You can't patent a recipe. So the only way you can protect it is as a trade secret. And what is a trade secret? I mean, trade secrets are things that cannot be protected by patents, copyrights, or trademarks. To be a trade secret, it's got to be something valuable that is secret. If it's not secret, it's not a trade secret. So like simple, obvious examples are that third base coach who's making those signals to the batter and the runner at first base. Those are trade secrets, and they will remain protected as long as they remain secret, just like a magician does certain magic tricks. Those are his trade secrets. Now, the real trade secrets in companies, and usually the company's trade secrets are actually more valuable than all their other intellectual property. You know, they can be marketing plans, customer lists, formulas, and as you mentioned, Farah, they can be recipes. Apparently, if you go to the headquarters of the Coca-Cola company in Atlanta and take their, the tour they offer, they will bring you by this enormous safe where they will tell you that locked inside that safe is the 100 and whatever it is, 10-year-old recipe for Coca-Cola, which many other companies have claimed they've been able to reverse engineer, but Coca-Cola has never revealed it. They also probably don't talk a lot about the origin of the Coke part of Coca-Cola. As you may know, in the early days, before it was outlawed, one of the key ingredients in Coca-Cola was cocaine, which is why it, in those early ads from like the 1880s and 1870s, they would talk about how it would make you, it would perk you up, it would give you energy. The name itself was so popular and widespread, they, they kept it. Even the shortened version, Coke, although there's been no cocaine in there for over 100 years. It seems to me it would be very difficult for someone who changes jobs within the same industry not to get into trouble on trade secrets. Because if I know, if I leave a company and I know a lot of the ingredients or plans or operations, I go to another company, am I expected to simply erase all of that from my memory before I go to work for the new guy, the competitor? One of the requirements for trade secret protection for company A before this employee leaves, company A has to not only show that it's, these things are secret, but that it's taken reasonable measures to keep them secret. And it's often done by having employees sign comp confidentiality agreements. And those confidentiality agreements expressly state that this obligation to, to maintain these trade secrets will continue even if you leave the company. Sadly, Bob, there have been a bunch of lawsuits over the years against the new company and its employee who came from the old company claiming there's been a breach of this confidentiality agreement. You know, there's now even a federal trade secrets law, um, which allows you to go into federal court when these things happen. But in many cases, the original company will be found not to have taken reasonable measures. They didn't have their employees sign confidentiality agreements. They gave them access to all this stuff. They even had, you know, when outside vendors would come in, there'd be no enhanced confidentiality procedures. So 
in order to be, have a protectable trade secret, it's got to be secret, and you've got to have taken steps to keep it secret. And if you have, and taken reasonable steps, then when that employee goes to the new company, he'll be expected not to reveal to the new company what those secrets are. Is there a time limit on protecting trade secrets? No, none. So there's a time limit on patents, 20 years. Copyrights, it's now 95 years. Trademarks, as long as you continue to use them, there's good. And same with trade secrets. As long as they're valuable and you keep them protected, like Coca-Cola, it, you know, it could last forever. Do you think we'll see the copyright timeline extended again, given that Mickey Mouse's 95th birthday might be fast approaching here in a few years? It's a great question. A lot of us are kind of suspiciously watching this. And this is my personal opinion, so don't attribute this to any of my clients. But I think if the original goal in the Constitution was to give artists an incentive to create, by giving them a monopoly for a limited period of time, I think 20 years is more than enough. But 95 years, to me, is just too long. So I'm hoping that no one tries to extend it again. The actual technical name of that amendment, everyone derisively calls it the Mickey Mouse Amendment, because it's much more fun. It's actually, weirdly enough, it's the Sonny Bono Amendment. I think Sonny Bono of Sonny and Cher, was he actually elected to Congress? Yeah. Yeah. So he was the one who sponsored that. Maybe he was encouraged by the Walt Disney people. It's an oddly named amendment that has Tony Bono's name on it. Let me go back to the trademark issue for a minute. If my name is McDonald and I want to open a restaurant somewhere, a small restaurant, and call it McDonald's Restaurant, am I in trouble with the hamburger people? You may be. And here's another interesting element to that. When you apply for and get a federal registration, which Ray Kroc did for McDonald's, from that point forward, you have nationwide rights, except where anyone was using it before you. And McDonald is a common surname. And at the time that McDonald's got their registration, there were several restaurants and diners around the country operating under the name McDonald's. And there was nothing Ray Kroc could do about them. And my understanding is eventually they just went around and purchased the names from these various diners and restaurants. But there are limited rights today if there's not going to be confusion and that's the issue, Bob, you need to say, look, and I'm operating a diner. No one's going to confuse me with McDonald's. I don't have golden arches in front. I'm not offering a hamburger that I'm calling a Big Mac, but it becomes a close call. McDonald's is going to be upset and they may come after this McDonald's who's just using his own name. But it's kind of this vague area. Clearly, everybody using it beforehand can still use it. It's just people now using it as a name so widespread. With my little restaurant, I probably would call it something else because I can't afford the legal fees to fight McDonald's. Yeah. Or you might use your full name, Bob McDonald Hamburger. Okay. That would work. Yeah. We could bore your listener forever on the area of trademarks because surnames have become a big issue and have always been a big issue with trademarks. Can you register your name as a trademark? And there are all these hurdles you have to go over before... You can be Orville Redenbacher and actually register, which he or his company has, his name as a brand for popcorn. But you've got to use it a long time before people start to associate the name with, with your product as a brand. And there are a lot of surnames out there that we don't even think of. There's a frozen vegetable brand that you don't even think of as somebody's last name. Birdseye. Yeah, Birdseye. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great, clever trademark. No, it's actually somebody's name. Just like the Goodyear Blimp, right? The Goodyear Tires is some guy's name but eventually it becomes associated with the tires or the blimp. 
or the popcorn or the frozen peas, and it can then function as a trademark. For those who are creating their own intellectual property, whatever it may be, in whatever fine arts or other form, are there any tips that you give them to, you know, especially if they're getting to the point where they're, it's not just a hobby, but they're selling their art, they're selling their music. When they take that next step, are there tips that you would give to them when it comes to copyright and or trademark? As for copyright, there are certain advantages. If you have a registered copyright before someone starts infringing, you can get what are known as statutory damages. You can get your attorney's fees. It gives you elevated rights. I will recommend that, and it's very cheap, you can register a copyright. You know, I'll I'll just try to explain to clients how they can do it themselves. You can register a copyright for like $50. That will give you all kinds of rights. You can do it online with the Copyright Office, which is a very user-friendly arm of the government. Trademarks, you know, trademarks can be more expensive. You earn trademark rights by simply using the trademark. It's what's known as a common law trademark. Registering it gives you additional rights, but once you've used your trademark, you have common law rights in it. And the only thing that, that I would advise a company to do is why don't you have somebody do the search and make sure somebody else much bigger than you isn't already using that trademark as their brand. And if not, then go ahead and use it. And, you know, when you can come up with a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars, we can get it registered for you. But the copyrights, so many times people out there, artists who didn't even know about this, find out there's an infringement. Then you have to scramble to the copyright office and pay an extra fee to get it registered on an expedited basis. And you have all these other remedies that would be available to you if the infringement had started after you'd registered it, but you're no longer available. So registering copyrights cheap. You can even do them in bulk now. There's this for like photographs. You have like 75 photographs that you think are valuable and you think might be worth marketing. You can register them all for like $75 in bulk. So it's it's worth registering copyrights in advance, even though you own them. It'll give you more rights if somebody ever tries to infringe them. If I'm buying photography or art or another type of product from someone, should I ask about purchasing the copyright with my purchase? Or is it okay to leave that with the original creator and just know that by me purchasing that piece of art or that photograph that I can only, you know, use it in a limited sense? You can always ask. You will rarely get the artist to give you the copyright. And you're right. You buy a work of art. You can buy a book. You can buy a John Grisham book. He owns the copyright. You can't make a movie based on that book. That's a derivative right. You can't start making photocopies of that book and selling them or the electronic versions. Um, and he's not going to give you his copyright. But, you know, for smaller artists, they may be willing to do it for an added price. I'll give you an example, which is wedding photography. Next time you get married or hire a photographer to do anything, take a look at the small print. Very often, the photographer will own the copyrights. They usually don't mind if you then post some wedding pictures or family pictures on the Internet, as long as you give them credit. But it's always worth reading the small print. I had a matter where the photographer got in a fight with the married couple who thought the photographer was overcharging them, paid what they felt was the fair amount, and then they posted their pictures on Instagram and Facebook, and guess what happened with that angry photographer who still owned the copyright, and they were now making a public display. Web developers, web designers own the copyright in their design of your website, unless in that agreement with the web designer, 
that web designer transfers the copyright to you. And you say, well, who cares about that? But there have been situations where there's a dispute with a web designer who then takes down the website because he or she owns the copyright in the website. And that's another creation. It's worth reading the fine print, although most of us don't read the fine print. I remember there was a talk given to law students by actually one of my classmates, who is now the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts. And during the question and answer period, one of the students said, you know, I'm wondering, Mr. Chief Justice, you know, when I go on to some of these websites, there'll be this license agreement, and I have to click whether I agree or not before I can go on. Then it takes so much text, I usually don't read, I just click agree. Do you read it? And he kind of blushed slightly and laughed and said, no, I don't either. So who knows, you're clicking agree to this license agreement. We all knew those very diligent classmates of ours in law school who read every line of everything, and they are still doing that. But a lot of us, who's got time to read all these license agreements? Do so with your wedding photographer or the family photographer, just to make sure you can put these on Instagram. That makes sense. I've actually gone to print photos locally or even online, and they make you go through a form and add your signature stating that you have permission to print these photos. Yeah, to protect the copyright. Yeah, Which is something, I mean, maybe five years ago, I never came across. So. Yeah, it's sort of their belt and suspenders approach. So they can say, we acted diligently. And it's there's an issue, the person who signed this, you should deal with. Sounds to me like almost what we're talking about today is kind of a lawyer's full employment issue. Before you do anything, it's best to talk to somebody like Michael Kahn. Unfortunately, Bob, I think that that's true. With many things, it's common sense. But certainly for people in business, it's worth finding some reasonably priced intellectual property lawyer and just run some questions by them. You get down in the weeds in some of these areas. You know, we haven't even talked about this other area of intellectual property, which is called right of publicity. You know, you may not realize it, but you own the commercial rights in your name, in your image and in any photographs of you. And it's usually not a big issue for any of us. But, you know, there have been major lawsuits over unauthorized use of people's images. In many states, your right of publicity will survive your death. You talk about zombie rights. And every year, Forbes magazine publishes their list of the 10 most lucrative dead people based on licensing rights. I remember being amazed. Steve McQueen, who was an actor from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, he died in 1980. And I don't think of him up there in the, you know, the Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne Ashland, and they've made a lot of money too, dead. In Forbes, I, I actually wrote it down. So he died in 1980. 30 years later, in 2010, his estate had earned $6 million licensing his name and license. Albert Einstein's heirs earned even more money. I think it was $10 million one year licensing his likeness. So when I was involved in a crazy lawsuit involving St. Louis Blues hockey player Tony Twist, who sued a comic book company, Spawn Comics, over what he claimed was the use of his name, Tony Twist, for this gangster. Antonio Twistelli, his nickname was Tony Twist. He claimed his right of publicity had been violated. Michael Jordan is sued over use of, actually over use of the number 23 on a pair of tennis shoes, claiming that was part of his right of publicity. That's another entire area where you need to be careful. There's a lot of big loopholes there. You can can use stuff in news stories. You can use stuff 
in works of fiction, but you can't make commercial uses. And then the, the question becomes, what's a commercial use? Of, I think we're talking about Kim Kardashian. Mm-hmm. I don't know that she's actually done anything other than being famous, but be very careful trying to use her name anywhere without her permission. Lindsay Lohan is another one. She had a lawsuit over an E-Trade commercial. I think that was in the Super Bowl when it was the two babies in high chairs talking to each other. And the little girl derisively says to the little boy who talks about something he's heard, says, oh, that sounds like something from that milkaholic Lindsay. Lindsay Lohan sued, claiming the reference to a milkaholic Lindsay was her because she'd been an alcoholic. Case got thrown out of court, but it's another whole area. It's really blossomed. Sort of is the Supreme Court's made it harder and harder to sue for libel. A lot of celebrities have now turned to write a publicity. And that's another whole area to talk about. We don't have time today. To your point, Fair and Bob, it's another lawyer's full employment act as that continues to grow and blossom, sadly. I know that you mentioned many said that the changes made to the law in this area in the 70s were already obsolete. Do you think that there will be any revisions anytime soon, not just to extending the length of uh, copyrights viability, but just changes to embrace our bold new world that includes connecting with others globally from the palm of our hand? <laughs> I think there will be. There are certainly various steps that need to be taken to exert some sort of control in a way consistent with the First Amendment over these social media companies to be able to get some semblance of order. And it's, it certainly includes the area of copyright. And, you know, we have this weird scene now where you've got the government that regulates certain speech, but they've sort of been hunted on all the speech that is occurring on these social media giants that are far more, in the area of speech, far more powerful than the government. You know, I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Twitter and Facebook reach a far greater audience than any of the traditional publications that would once run to court, whether it was the Pentagon Papers with the Washington Post um, or, or other important First Amendment cases. Not only the copyright law, but, you know, our other laws need to try to catch up with technology that is so far outpaced. People didn't envision computer code that much back in 1976. And now that's covered by copyright, and there's all kind of lawsuits over that. There's all kind of innovations that have so far outpaced the law, not just in copyright or in the world of patents, which we never even got to. Patents cover inventions. But, you know, there's all kind of fighting there. And even now there's that interesting patent issue, which is what do we do about the patents, incredibly valuable patents that these pharmaceutical companies own in these COVID vaccines? They own them. They have exclusive rights in them. But do we need to do something to make them more available while still recognizing that these investments in research and development, which are hundreds of millions of dollars, are all based on the hope of these pharmaceutical companies that will come up with something we can patent, which Pfizer did, Moderna did, um, Johnson & Johnson did. And now do we want to strip them of that patent to say, well, now everybody can do it or not? I mean, I'm not, I don't know the answer to that. But it's just another example of things happening now that nobody or maybe certain people foresaw. I mean, my understanding is that there were many scientists who predicted, not the specific COVID pandemic we have, but predicted that there would be such pandemics, and maybe they have thought through the issue of patents 
But that's just another area where inventions and other developments nobody predicted have now outpaced the laws we have in place, which are in place to try to give people incentives for doing things. Well, it sounds like we have plenty of topics for another show sometime with you, Michael. We do, yeah. indeed. Yeah, there's there are, there are a lot of fun areas, and uh, I'd be happy to explore them with you next time. Well, I want to thank everybody for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal 2, a special production of the Missouri Bar, and our thanks especially to Michael Kahn for helping us to better understand some of the issues of intellectual property works, and maybe look forward to talking about this even more in the future. Michael, thank you. Well, it was a real pleasure. I want to thank you guys for putting this together. It was a lot of fun. Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights. We've asked the Missouri Bar's Tony Simons to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. The topic of intellectual property in the Constitution offers a veritable case study in the problems associated with writing and interpreting the Constitution. Let's start with the language of the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 provides, Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, to pay debts, and to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. It goes on to state that Congress may act to promote the progress of science and the useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. And what was the accepted means of securing for authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries? It was to grant to authors and artists a copyright on their creations and to grant patents to inventors and scientists on their discoveries. At first glance, this seems like a straightforward situation. The framers of the Constitution, who were innovators in the construction of a system of government, sought to encourage innovation in other areas of the nation's existence. By empowering Congress to reward the creators in our society with copyrights and patents, the framers were seeking to encourage those who produced art and literature and those who invented devices and machines that would advance us in every way as a society. However, very little is straightforward in the interpretation of the Constitution. Those who sought to limit the power of Congress focused on that language of Article 1, Section 8 that stated Congress could promote the progress of science and the useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. They argued it must be the case that the only way Congress could promote the progress of science and the useful arts was by creating a system that awarded copyrights and patents. Their argument was that anything beyond what was specifically authorized by the Constitution was forbidden. Thus, according to this line of argument, the idea that Congress might promote the progress of science and the useful arts by other means, such as spending to fund education or research and development, was unconstitutional. The counter-argument on this issue is based upon the idea that Congress should be free to exercise its power as long as it does not actually violate a provision in the Constitution. 
Advocates of this position asked why the framers of the Constitution would be so short-sighted as to identify innovation in science and the useful arts as priorities, but then say the only way Congress could inspire this sort of innovation was with copyrights and patents. Such an argument denies Congress the very innovation that the framers sought to achieve in other areas. An alternative explanation for the language used in Article 1, Section 8 is that the framers saw a system of awarding copyrights and patents as an essential but not an exclusive component of achieving innovation. The framers knew that some people would argue that creating a process of copyrights and patents was not a power possessed by Congress. To address this situation and to ensure that Congress would have the means of protecting intellectual property and inspiring innovation and invention, the framers wanted it to be clear in the Constitution that Congress did in fact have the authority to grant copyrights and patents. This did not mean that copyrights and patents were the only way of encouraging innovation, but rather simply one strategy among the options possessed by Congress to achieve this vital part of our development as a nation. As Edward Walterscheid argued in the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology, Unfortunately, in saying so explicitly, the delegates seem not to have contemplated that their express language could be taken as a limitation on the general grant of authority to promote the progress of science and useful arts. And as a consequence, they inartfully phrased it. Rather than limiting the general grant of authority, they actually sought to increase it to expressly include the power to grant patents and copyrights. But that was not what the literal language of the clause appeared to say. As indicated at the outset, this is a case study in the dangers of writing and interpreting a constitution. Beware of the rocks and shoals you'll be sailing into and chart your course carefully. So, you want Congress to be able to authorize patents and copyrights as a way of protecting intellectual property? If you don't include it in the Constitution, then people will argue it doesn't say that in the Constitution, therefore Congress can't do it. If you do say it, then people will argue this is the only way that the Constitution says Congress can advance innovation in the science and useful arts. The answer, of course, is that you say it, but you say it with precision, taking care to put into words the ideas you mean to make a reality. In writing and interpreting a constitution, not only must you do what is necessary, you must do so in a way that solves problems rather than creating them. This entire episode demonstrates that in constitutional law, good intentions are not enough. You must wrap those good intentions within the safe cocoon of carefully considered and solidly structured language. In our constitutional system, words matter. And the manner in which an idea is articulated is as important as the idea itself. Nothing further... Your Honor.
There are some resources that you might want to check, whether you're involved in criminal proceedings or whether you have other legal questions on these or other topics. That's right, Bob. At MissouriLawyersHelp.org, that's MissouriLawyersHelp.org, you can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. We'll see you on the next edition of Is It Legal 2?